All right, there we go. I tend to get a little amped up and excited, so I need some energy while I'm up here. Um, I was here, oh, I don't know, maybe about a month or so ago, and I was flying solo that day. Uh, if you recall, my whole family had the stomach flu, so I was here by myself. Uh, it's nice to have my wife here this morning, and my girls are downstairs, and it's a joy to be back with you this morning. Um, I almost wasn't. So we, we went on vacation, we were on airplanes, multiple airplanes, and I got sick, and up until, I don't know, maybe Friday, I didn't have a voice. And so right now, it's still a little weak, it's a little bit scratchy, so I want to pause before I begin and just ask for stamina and that the Lord would get us through this service. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a chance to be back here uh, with my brothers and sisters uh, at First Baptist. God, I thank you for uh, your goodness, uh, for uh, who, for who you are and the fact that we have a place to come and, uh, and to worship and to acknowledge your goodness and to praise you and to be in your word together as a family. God, I pray for strength right now. I pray for stamina. I pray that you'd keep me from coughing. I pray that you'd help my voice to hold out. And in all things, God, I pray that you would be praised, that you'd be glorified through the message this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we are going to be in the book of Job. So you can go ahead and, uh, and turn there uh, right now. Uh, I have a few remarks just by way of introduction, but we will be in the book shortly. So Job chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. All right. Now, Job is in the middle of your Old Testament. So if you don't know where Job is, just go to the book of Psalms right in the middle and hang a left, and there you'll see Job. Job is part of a collection of the poetic books, Israel's poetry, all right? So uh, in your Bibles, to the left of Job, you've got Israel's history, and to the right of Job and the poetic books, you've got Israel's prophets, who are, by and large, concerned with Israel's history, the poetic books right here in the middle of the Old Testament aren't necessarily concerned with Israel's history. They're concerned with things like wisdom, a proper worship of God, and giving expression to some of humanity's deepest longings and desires. And we're going to see that this morning in the book of Job. Now, we don't know who wrote Job uh, or when it was written exactly, but we get some clues from the context in the book, it appears to be a very ancient, a very old book. Uh, the setting is very similar to what we see uh, in Genesis 12 to 50 in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the thinking is that Job is one of the oldest books that we have in the Old Testament. And it's set uh, in this period of history where uh, God had first revealed himself to the person of Abraham and word about Yahweh, that's Israel's covenant name for God, is spreading throughout the land. So this is an old book, and have that context in your mind. Now, if you've ever read through Job or uh, heard a sermon on Job, you probably have something in your mind already. So I'm going to ask you a question. This is called response, and I want you to give me a little feedback. I'm going to ask you a question, and the first thing that comes to mind, as long as it's appropriate, shout it out, okay? <laughs> that part's important. Here we go. When you think about what the book of Job is about, it's about... Exactly, but no. I mean, it kind of is. There's a lot of that in the book, and that's what we've come to expect. The book is about suffering. 
It is, but there's more going on there. So what uh, philosophers and uh, theologians throughout the history uh, since we've had these books, what they've been wrestling with are questions like, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let's look at the book of Job. Well, first of all, that question's flawed. So when that comes up, you need to start preaching to people. That's a terrible question. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. We're all sinners, right, at our core. And so because of that, we deserve death, separation, and hell. We don't deserve God. Why do bad things happen to good people? No, that's not a real question. When you... Amen. The good one was crucified, right? Yeah. So, a better question might be something like, hey, when suffering comes, because you're right, the book is about suffering on the surface. When suffering comes, the better question is, how do you respond to that? What's your response to suffering? So, we are going to talk about suffering this morning, but I think that there's more going on here. There's, there's a, bigger, uh, a bigger issue a bigger problem. You know what? Job isn't even the main character. He's just kind of somebody who gets pulled into something, that, something that's happening behind the scenes. So we're going to dig into the text right now together. Uh, let's go ahead and look at the first couple of verses. If you don't have uh, the copy of the Word of God this morning, here are the words. And this might be a little awkward, but I'm going to be reading off the screen quite a bit today. So here we go. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. All right, let me back up one slide here. There are a few things that I want to point out on the screen for you. So first off, uh, I have here us, underline, and in bold, and blameless and upright, underline, and in bold. If you know your Bible geography at all, um, us should jump out at you right away. Here's what's going on. Let's say here, here is the, uh, the land of Israel, the promised land, and it's divided um, on its eastern border there by the Jordan River, which runs north to south. And over here, you're outside the land, okay? So here you're in the land, Jordan River, outside the land. Uz is outside of the land. Job's a Gentile. Job's a Gentile, but the text says he's blameless and upright. We have a Gentile in the period of Genesis who's blameless and upright, Uz, and this is just speculation here, but Uz is next to Ur. Who was from Ur? Abraham. It's possible that maybe this man, Job, who was the greatest man in the ancient Near East at this time, maybe he had contact with Abraham. And if not, he certainly had contact with some God-fearer. He came into uh, contact with somebody who 
loved Yahweh and worshipped Yahweh. That's uh, Israel's covenant name for God. That's our God. He came in contact with somebody who introduced him to this God, to creator God, and he believed. And God says of this man that he is blameless and upright. Look here, too. It says that he had seven sons and three daughters. Numbers mean a lot in the Old Testament. Seven was a sign of perfection. Ten was a sign of completion. And in this culture, males or sons tended to be favored over daughters. So he had the perfect number of sons, and he had the perfect number of children. So this is a guy who had all of the external markers of blessedness. And that's also demonstrated just beyond this. Look at all this wealth. That's incredible wealth. This guy was the Bill Gates of the ancient Near East. He had a ton of wealth. And the text calls him the greatest man in that area. So as we see here in the opening paragraph of the book of Job, here's a guy who's got it all together. And he's got all of these external markers of blessedness. He's got uh, a lot of money. He owns a lot of property. He's got a good family. And as we see on the next slide, he's also a solid dad. Look at this guy. His kids would have these parties. They'd come together. They would feast. They'd have a good time. But Job was concerned about them. He was concerned about their spiritual state, not just his own spiritual state, but the spiritual state of his kids as well. And he would make arrangements. He would be proactive about their spiritual condition. He would bring them together, and he would offer sacrifices for them. This is a good dad. So who here wants to be like Job? He's a solid guy. He's got it all together. Put your hands down. Look at the next, next verse here. Here we go with verse 6. On the day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and your Bible there might say, on the day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, uh, on that day, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He is blameless. He's an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan replies, Does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand And strike everything he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All right, a couple things that we need to note here in the text as well. This is foreign to us. This is a little weird. The angels, the sons of God, they went and they presented themselves to God? What's going on here? This is something that's called uh, the divine council. And this was how um, the Jews in the Old Testament, is how they understood uh, God and the hierarchy of angels and demons and these sorts of things. So their view was you have Yahweh, you've got creator God who's over all. And then under him, you've got All of these lesser deities, they're not humans, 
they are angels. And there are good angels and there are bad angels. And Satan, uh, his name here means the accuser, Hasatan, the accuser. Here's Satan who's sort of the chief of the bad guys. So here they are coming to God and um, Satan decides that, that you know, he's had enough of this guy, Job. So uh, we're going to get in, uh, into this here in just a minute. Let me point out one more thing. Um, who's in control of this conversation? Right. Right. The Lord is in control. Here you have uh, the angels, uh, the sons of God, coming to present themselves to the Lord. But the Lord is in control over all of this. We were talking about a little bit earlier. I think I was talking here with Dave. Satan doesn't get to see inside of you. Satan doesn't know your thoughts. You said it well. He's got access to the outside, as we're going to see here in a minute. He doesn't have access to the inside. But he doesn't have access to you, period, unless God gives him permission. And that's what we see happening in the text. All right. So Satan says, okay, or I guess the Lord initially, um, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, this guy doesn't serve you for no reason. I mean, look at everything you've given to him. He's blessed. Strike this guy, and he will curse you to your face. So God says, my servant Job is blameless and upright. He's making a declaration about the character of the man because he knows his heart. Job's external actions are based on internal convictions. And Satan says, no, 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 God, you've got it all wrong. Only because you bless him. That's why this guy is serving you. So Satan's question really gets to the heart of the book about you know, what Job is all about. He's saying that, God, you are not inherently worthy to be worshipped simply on the basis of the greatness of your character. You are not worthy to be worshipped. You are simply being worshipped because you give. Take away the stuff and you lose the man. His question, does Job fear God for nothing, is worthy of consideration, right? We see this even in the New Testament. There were times when Jesus would do these mass feedings, and the people would get food from God, and there's one instance in particular where he feeds several thousand people, he gets in a boat, and he goes to the other side of a lake, and when he gets there, who's waiting for him? The people. Everybody he just fed, they went around the lake, and they met him when he got off the boat. Why? Because they wanted to be his disciples? No, because they wanted more stuff. They wanted food. So Satan's question is worthy of consideration. Would we fear God and worship him even if there were no benefits and blessings in the here and now? Would we worship God simply because he is worthy to be worshipped? All right. So Satan says, take away everything and he will publicly disown you. And God permits the challenge. He says, okay, I know the man's heart. Go ahead. Take away his stuff. Just don't touch the man. And Satan does. And with this interaction, we learn the function, the function of Job's suffering in the book. The book is on the surface about Job's suffering, but something else is happening underneath. His testing, his suffering is designed to test the genuineness of his heart. Or stated another way, it's meant to show that God is worthy to be worshipped, 
simply on the basis of the greatness of God's character. Will we still serve a God who gives as well as who takes away? Will we continue to love a God who brings pain rather than prosperity? That's what Satan wants to know. So here's how the rest of this chapter plays out. Job gets attacked literally from the north, south, east, and west. Uh, There's this group of marauding raiders called the Sabians. They come in from the south and they take all of Job's oxen and donkeys. So a servant comes and tells him about this. He says, hey, listen, Sabians came, took all the oxen and donkeys. Man, that's that's a thousand pieces of livestock. Oh, and your servants got killed. Wow, that's a, that's a big dent in my wealth, Job's thinking. The text says, as he was still talking, another servant came. And he says, man, lightning came in from the west off the Mediterranean. Bizarre, but it, it fried all the sheep and the servants. Wow, okay. While he's still talking, the text says, another servant comes along. He says, man, the Chaldeans came in from the north They stole all 3,000 of the camels and they killed your servants. I've lost everything. While he's still talking, a fourth servant comes. And he has the worst news of all. He says, hey, the Sirocco, the violent east wind that can reach hurricane speeds off the desert. It came to where your kids were having one of their parties and it knocked the house down. And all ten kids are dead. He lost his job. He lost his kids. He lost his wealth. He lost everything. And we're only in chapter two. Everything is gone. And at the end of this, he delivers one of the most powerful faith statements that we find in Scripture. This is what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. I came into the world with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. Had nothing to begin with. I'm not going to have anything at my death. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What? Could you say that? I'd like to think that I could. But if God chose to take one or both of my girls... I don't know that I could say that. And what's even more amazing, before he makes the statement, once all four of these servants come and give him the bad news, verse 20 tells us this. He fell to the ground to complain. He fell to the ground in worship. Test passed. God was right. God is worthy to be worshipped simply on the basis of the greatness of his character. He took away all the stuff, and the man worshipped him. Chapter 2. Here comes Satan. Once again, the sons of God, the angels, are presenting themselves to the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, you consider my servant Job? There's nobody like him in all the land. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. And Satan replies, 
Skin for skin. These mortals that you made, they'll give everything to save their own life. Let me get to the man. Not his stuff. Let me get to the man, and he will surely curse you to your face. God says, no, he won't. But all right, I'm going to let you do it. Just don't kill him. Make him as miserable as you want to make him. Get him right to the brink of death, but don't kill him. You can't kill my guy. And out goes Satan. The text says that he afflicted Job with painful boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Job, who's already in mourning, goes and sits among the ashes of his ruined life. And the text says that he has to take pottery to scratch off the sores and the boils and to to scratch his itches. Just a disgusting, gross picture. Then Job's wife come along, comes along, and she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Interesting, that's the exact phrase that God used of Job. She said, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Did somebody just say nice wife? That's fantastic. <laughs> Job's response, maybe the second greatest speech act or faith statement in the Bible Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I mean, look at our life up until this point. We had all of the external markers of blessedness. He gave us everything. And now trouble comes. I'm just supposed to curse God and forget about all of these decades of good stuff? He says, you're speaking speaking like a foolish person. No, we can't do that. Again, the text says, like it said in chapter 1, in all this, Job did not sin. Test passed. But now, a greater test is coming, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. In the next section here, we meet three of Job's friends. They're they're Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, shortest man in the Bible. He was a Shuhite. Are you with me? Come on, wake up. That's some dad humor. That's fantastic. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar the Namathite. The text says that they heard about all of Job's troubles. Remember, he's the greatest man in the East. Word of his calamity gets back and spreads among the people. So his three friends say, we're going to go and take care of this guy. We're going to come alongside. We're going to be good friends. We're going to encourage him. We're going to weep with him. We're going to mourn with him. Let's go see Job. And for a short period in time, these guys were the best biblical counselors that there are. It says the text says that they didn't open their mouth. Right? They just sat with this guy and mourned. They just sat there and mourned. You know, when people are going through stuff, one of the best things you can do is just sit there with them, weep with them. On two separate occasions in pastoral ministry, I've had to sit with people who've lost a child. They don't care what you had to say. And oftentimes, they resent you for saying it. Just sit there and weep. Job's friends do that. Temporarily. The text says that when they saw him from a distance, they could barely recognize him. And they tore their robes, they wept aloud, and they threw dust in the air and let it fall on their heads. In the Old Testament, when did people do that? At a funeral. Job was in such bad shape that his friends just treated him like he was dead. They saw this guy and said, are you kidding me? This is the greatest man in the East? Look at him. He's in terrible shape. Now, the rest of the book, except for the very last chapter, 
are a series of speeches. And guys, this is ancient Hebrew poetry. It's difficult. It's confusing. Um, it's hard to understand in places. And I mean that reverently. I love God's word. But there are parts of it, especially in the Old Testament, where we're a couple thousand years beyond that. It's kind of hard to wrap our heads around some of the stuff that's in there. So what I've done, because I want to get through the whole book this morning, what I've done is I've distilled these speeches down to a series of text messages. So we're going to go through a couple of text messages together. Now, I know we have some senior saints here who are probably like, you know, what's a text message? So I, I get it. Um, although I have been impressed, um, you know, with, with the baby boomers and the greatest generation. A lot of them are using iPhones now. It's been really cool to see. My parents even started texting, which has been a really cool thing, too. So technology, it can be a cool thing. So just humor me this morning. What happens through the rest of the chapters in this book um, You've got a friend who speaks, and Job replies. A friend who speaks, and Job replies. These cycles of speeches. So we've just distilled them down to a couple of text messages, and I want to walk through that this morning, and then we'll wrap up with the point of the book. Are you with me? Okay, here we go. So, so Job sits there, and his friends are quiet, and he's quiet, and they're there with him for a week. Again, best biblical counseling ever. Just mourn with me. And then verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 starts out, after this, after this, this week of silence, Job opens his mouth, and he begins to just mourn the day that he was born. And for some reason, his friends think that this has now given them the right to speak into his life, and all their advice is terrible. So here's what we see happening here. First text message. Oh, and you know what? These guys, there's nobody here named Bildad, right? So I just reduced these names to simpler forms. We've got Eli, we've got Bill, and we have Zoe. That's easier, right? We're going to do that this morning. First guy to speak is Eli. He says, Job, you're a good guy, but suffering is to be expected. Take heart. God is disciplining you, but will ultimately restore you. No. We need to do a little theology this morning. Let's just pause. It's a biblical principle to say, um, if you sin there will be punishment. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 28, the foundation of God's relationship with his people Israel. Listen and obey, and you'll be blessed. Disobey, and that's going to bring judgment. We see this in the New Testament, too. Paul says it in as many words. Sin carries consequences. That is a biblical perspective. If you sin, you can expect that there will be consequences from God. What's not a biblical perspective is to flip that and say, because you are suffering, you must have sinned. No, not necessarily. As we see in chapter 1 and 2, there are things happening behind the scenes, a whole other world of God and Satan and angels, a spiritual realm that we're not privy to. It's not right to say, because you're suffering, you must have sinned. In fact, we see this too in, uh, I think it's John 9, where uh, there was a man who was born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus at the beginning of that chapter, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he was born blind, right? So somebody must have done something wrong. Jesus is like, no, you've got it all wrong. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born this way in order that the power of God might be displayed through him. All right? Biblical statement. If you sin, expect discipline. Unbiblical statement. Because you're suffering, you sinned. And that's the theology of Job's friends, as we're going to see. So Eli starts out that way. And Job replies by saying, I don't care. I just want to die. God is against me. 
why is all of this happening to me? And that question of why, that's, that's a pretty common question in, in suffering. Why is all of this happening to me? Next friend speaks up. This is Bill. Bill says, nonsense, Job. Get right with God, and he will help you. What's the implication here? You're not right with God, and he's not helping you. Who died in chapter 1? Ten of Job's kids. God wasn't helping them, right? So they must not have been right with God either. Salt in the wound. Great friend, Bill. Right? Who are these guys? Job says, but I am right before God. I don't want relief from my suffering. I want vindication. So in Job's mind, he knows that he is blameless and he is righteous. He knows that he hasn't sinned. He doesn't want uh, to repent. I mean, to repent of what? That would be an omission of guilt for something that he didn't do. He wants vindication. He wants God to show up and explain why he did what he did. He wants a not guilty verdict. What he doesn't realize is that he's already got that. When God declares somebody righteous, that's God saying not guilty. So rather than trusting in the promises of God and what he knows about creator God, now Job starting to kind of feel sorry for himself and his perspective slips. Next one here, we've got Zoe. He says, vindication? You're suffering because you're a secret sinner. So repent. Listen, Job, maybe it's not something that's really obvious, but we all have secret sins. So admit your secret sin and repent. And Job's response, look at this guy. You call yourselves friends? I want nothing to do with you. I only want to speak to God. So what Job is doing here in the language is initiating a formal lawsuit with God. He's calling God to court. He wants an explanation. How do you think that's going to go? Eli senses the gravity of the situation, and he says, Calm down, Job. Whatever your initial sin was, because I'm sure you were guilty, you're suffering, therefore you're guilty, you'd better back off, or God is going to get you. He realizes what Job is doing. God doesn't lose in court, Job. You don't call God to court. Job says, what miserable comforters you all are. My first week with you was pretty great. This, uh, this next week hasn't been so good. What miserable comforters you all are. I know that I haven't sinned. All this suffering makes no sense to me. Isn't that oftentimes our perspective? We go through something, we want to know why. It doesn't make any sense to us. We're not privy to what's happening behind the scenes. Bill comes back and he says, yeah, but again, you are suffering. So listen, the fate of the wicked is miserable, so you'd better get right with God. The fate of the wicked, and we see this repeatedly in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the fate of the wicked is death. The fate of the wicked is bad, Job, so get right with God. And Job says, all right, you want to do the logic game? I can do this with you. Okay, I'm suffering, but I'm suffering unjustly. But now you're guilty because you are condemning and accusing an innocent man. So be afraid because when God shows up to vindicate me, he's going to get you. I haven't sinned. I'm guilty. But you're sinning by accusing an innocent man. Zoe decides he needs to weigh in on the conversation again. He's like, look, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. Change 
or you'll die. Job says, okay, more logic. Here we go. The wicked suffer. Job is suffering. Therefore, Job must be wicked. That's what you say, friends. But I tell you that the wicked don't suffer. They prosper. Right? Look at all the kings and the rulers. They're not righteous people. Look at the foreign kings, the pagan kings. They're, they're prospering. So my logic, Job says, is that since I am suffering and they're not, I'm righteous and they're not. You see his point? It's like you guys got it backward. The righteous suffer, not the wicked. Because look at how the wicked prosper. Eli weighs in again. He's like, okay, well, maybe you haven't done something on purpose. Maybe you've sinned unintentionally by failing to do something. And this gets into those categories of the sins of omission versus the sins of commission. The sins of commission are when we knowingly sin with the high hand in rebellion to God's revealed will. I'm going to sin. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's a sin of commission. You know what you're doing. There's this other category called sins of omission. And back in the law, God makes provision for these sins. These are times when you sin when maybe you don't realize you're sinning. Or maybe you sin because you failed to do something. So Eli is trying to find some middle ground now here at the end of these arguments. He says, maybe this is a sin of omission, Job. Maybe you really are guilty, you just don't know it. So Job sighs. He says, I just wish I could argue my case with God. He would vindicate me. Bildad, he's going to close us out here. He says, Job, not only are you crazy, but you're wrong. God is unimaginably powerful. Don't mess with him. And Job wraps up by saying, guys, what else can I say? I swear to you, I'm innocent. God knows. I just wish that he would declare it. So after this bombardment of bad theology, Job, uh, he defends himself throughout the course of these speeches against deceit, adultery, mistreating his servants, disregarding the poor, greed, rejoicing in the misfortunes of others, assaulting the land, you name it. His friends threw all these sins at him, and he maintains his integrity and his innocence throughout this whole process. But then there's a fourth friend. And I don't have him up here on the screen. His name's Elihu. The text says he's a young guy. He was sitting among his elders, so he sat there silently. But he hears all of this awful theology, and finally at the end of it, he has to pipe up, and he issues a corrective. He says, all of you guys are wrong. God is just, and you do wrong by claiming that he's not. So here's the young guy issuing a corrective to his elders. Because somewhere along the line, Job lost sight of his initial faith statements. Early on, he had declared that God was worthy to be worshipped. But once he started getting bombarded with all of this bad thinking from his friends, his focus shifted inward. He began to trust his external righteousness rather than God's declaration of Job's internal righteousness. He lost sight of God's worthiness of worship by accusing him of letting the righteous suffer without cause. You want to go to court with God? He shows up. And he'd always been there, but now he's actually physically dialoguing with Job. And this is what he says. He begins in Job 38. He says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? 
Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. And then he goes on. Chapter 38, 39, 40, 41. You thought Job's friends were ruthless. God lays into them in a loving, heavenly father you know, kind of way. But he sets him straight. He corrects his theology. God, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see this. God isn't callous toward our suffering. 2 Corinthians 1 says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, compa- of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. God lost his son too. All right? God knows what we are going through. So he lovingly but sternly rebukes Job in the last several chapters of, these book, uh, of this book. And this is Job's reply. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know you can do it, God. And he goes on to say, I repent, I am sorry, I despise myself, I shut my mouth. So what's the point of all this? What are we getting at this morning? It's this. The question isn't, why do bad things happen to good people? The question is, how do you respond when bad things do happen? We have a God who is worthy to be worshipped simply on the basis of the greatness of his character. That's what the book's about. Twice Satan tested Job with God's permission, and twice Job passed. Admittedly, he gets off kilter a little bit here throughout the rest of the book, but God brings him back, and he still declares Job righteous. Because Job knew this. We have a God who is worthy to be worshipped. And this is what I want us to take away from the book of Job. In our darkest moments, when our world spirals out of control, we still have a God who is worthy of worship. And it may take some time for us to see that, but he will ultimately, lovingly, patiently bring us to the place to recognize that. The same God who declared Job righteous also declared us who believe in his son to be righteous. This is our heavenly father. Our focus needs to be on that. And I know this is easier said than done. Focus needs to be on that. A God who's worthy of worship and not our suffering and our circumstances. So as I close, I think it's fitting just to say that God restored his servant. He gave him twice as much He gave him double all of his livestock and animals and all that, and he gave him another seven sons and three daughters. The text says that he comforted Job in that way. That might not be God's plan for us. We might not see vindication and restoration, but that doesn't change this. Regardless of circumstances, we look heavenward because we have a God who is worthy to be worshipped. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, We just thank you for who you are. We thank you that as things spiral out of control, we can just rest in the fact that you've got this. You are in control. It's only from a human perspective that things seem to be out of control. But God, there are things happening behind the scenes that we're not privy to. Paul says that there are principalities and powers and other things going on in the spirit realm that we just don't know about. And we're not called to understand all that. God, we're called to trust. And when we acknowledge that we have a God who's worthy to be worshipped regardless of circumstances, that's indicative of our heart situation. We put our trust in you. We're going to trust in you to take care of all things, whether that's in good times or in suffering. God, give us that strength. Give us that foresight. Give us that perspective. We will trust in you. 
and not be afraid. We pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.